<coughs> this section of uh, mindfulness of the body is called postures and activities. Returning to the Satipatthana contemplations, the next two exercises described in the discourse, awareness of the four postures and clear knowledge in regard to activities, are both concerned with directing mindfulness to the body in activity. The instructions for contemplating the four postures are when walking he knows I'm walking, when standing he knows I am standing, when sitting he knows I am sitting, when lying down he knows I am lying down, or he knows accordingly however his body is disposed. So that's when it says the four postures it's referring to sitting, standing, walking, lying down and of, of course there are other postures uh, available, standing on your head, running, etc., um, etc. Et but as that last clause uh, outlines, uh, it knows accordingly however his body is disposed. So whatever posture the body happens to be in. But the four um, are the most common, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, that most of us are in at uh, the various parts of our average day. The enumeration of the four postures in the above instruction proceeds from the more active walking to the comparatively more refined and passive postures, sitting, lying down. The instruction here is to know, quote-unquote, each of these postures, probably implying some form of proprioceptive awareness. That means uh, being uh, aware of the body sense, the... the, the uh, the feeling of the presence of the body. In other discourses, these four postures often convey the sense of doing something at any time. Applied to the context of Satipatthana, this usage suggests continuity of body awareness during all activities. In fact, according to the above instruction, this contemplation is not limited to the four postures, but includes any way one's body might be positioned. Thus, what this particular contemplation means, practically speaking, is to be aware of the body in a general manner, to be with, quote-unquote, the body during its natural activities instead of being carried away by various thoughts and ideas and therefore to be mentally anchored in the body. Uh, in uh, Ajahn Chah's teachings, uh, uh, he talks about um, keeping the postures even and uh, that's, uh, as far as I'm aware, that's not something that is uh, spoken of in that, in that same kind of terminology in the suttas, but it's a, um, a commentarial um, expression, what you get in uh, the Visuddhimagga, the later commentaries like the Visuddhimagga. And uh, as a young monk, much of Ajahn Chah's uh, education uh, as, uh, as today uh, was based more on commentarial uh, treatises, uh, so textbooks that you get in Thailand for learning Dhamma based on, based on suttas but also very much based on say the Visuddhi uh, Magga for the, um, the, uh, the basic uh, outlining, uh, outline of description of Dhamma practice and then in terms of Vinaya you'd have like Vinaya commentaries like uh, what's called the Pupasika Vanana so it's, and it's the same in, in most Buddhist countries that uh, the tendency is to refer to the commentaries and commentarial explanations 
rather than the, the sutta. So Ajahn Chah refers quite often to this um, uh, principle of keeping the postures even and how he misunderstood that. So I'll read a, a little bit from uh, this um, Dhamma talk called No Abiding. Uh, this is uh, chapter four in the Collected Teachings. And um, I just realized today that it's the same talk translated by a different person uh, that you have, uh, or at least the same passages, in this talk called Right Restraint later on in the book. Um, so it's, uh, uh, I thought that, that, that uh, sounds very like uh, the same words in, in uh, No Abiding. And uh, of course, it turns out that, well, at least as far as I can tell, it's the same talk, but somebody else translated it and it's just appeared in the same collection under a different heading. So you can look at this, this teaching up, you can look up this teaching if you wish, either under chapter 4, No Abiding, or under chapter 53, Right Restraint. So I'll read the version from No Abiding. Some people's tendencies cause them to prefer walking meditation. Others prefer sitting. But you can't do without either of them. The scriptures refer to the four postures, standing, walking, sitting and lying down. We live with these four postures. We may prefer one to the other, but we must use all four. The scriptures say to make these, these four postures even, to make the practice even in all postures. At first, I couldn't figure out what it meant to make them even. Maybe it means we should sleep for two hours and then stand for two hours and walk for two hours. Maybe that's it. I tried it. Couldn't do it. It was impossible. That's not what it meant to make the postures even. Making the postures even refers to the mind, to our awareness, giving rise to wisdom in the mind, to illumine the mind. This wisdom of ours must be present in all postures. We must know or understand constantly, standing, walking, sitting or lying down. We know all mental states as impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self. Making the postures even in this way can be done. It is possible. Whether like or dislike are present in the mind, we don't forget our practice. We are aware. And as a sort of footnote to that, Ajahn Chah was one of these... Uh, uh, characters that uh, if you take something on he would do it 120% so he says okay make it even okay and when he says I tried it you know, two hours sitting, two hours standing, two hours uh, walking, two hours lying down that he, he did do that for uh, a considerable amount of time I think uh, <coughs> several weeks and was um, run ragged <laughs> had it very uh, difficult to, to try and sustain that and and when he said, uh, I tried it, but it was impossible, then, you know, he really tried it. It wasn't just like giving it a go for, you know, for half a day, but, uh, but it would have been an extended period of time to really try and work it. And, and then seeing uh, uh, by, by uh, what was the result of trying to be faithful to the teaching and then coming to the conclusion, it can't mean that. So that's why he had this, this particular insight. If we just focus our attention on the mind constantly, then we have the gist of the practice. Whether we experience mental states which the world knows as good or bad, we don't forget ourselves. 
We don't get lost in good or bad. We just go straight. Making the postures constant in this way is possible. If we have constancy in our practice, when we're praised, then it's simply praise. If we're blamed, it's just blame. We don't get high or low over it, we stay right here. Why? Because we see the danger in all those things. We see their results. We are constantly aware of the danger in both praise and blame. Normally, if we have a good mood, the mind is good also. We see them as the same thing. If we have a bad mood, the mind goes bad as well. We don't like it. That's the way it is. This is uneven practice. If we have constancy just to the extent of knowing our moods and knowing we're clinging to them, this is better already. That is, we have awareness, we know what's going on, but we still can't let go. We see ourselves clinging to good and bad, and we know it. We cling to good, and know it's not right practice, but we still can't let go. This is <clears throat> 50 to 70% of the practice already. There still isn't release, but we know that if we could let go, that would be the way to peace. We keep seeing equally, sorry, we keep seeing the equally harmful consequences of all our likes and dislikes, of praise and blame continuously. Whatever the conditions may be, the mind is constant in this way. But if worldly people get blamed or criticized, they get really upset. If they get praised, it cheers them up. They say it's good, and they get really happy over it. If we know the truth of our various moods, if we know the consequences of clinging to praise and blame, the danger of clinging to anything at all, we will become sensitive to our moods. We will know that clinging to them really causes suffering. We see this suffering, and we see our very clinging as the cause of that suffering. We begin to see the consequences of grabbing and clinging to good and bad because we've grasped them and seen the result before. No real happiness. So now we look for the way to let go. Where is this way to let go? In Buddhism we say, don't cling to anything. We never stop hearing about this, don't cling to anything. Just like I was talking about yesterday. Sabe dhamma nalang avinivesaya. This means to hold but not to cling, like this flashlight, which he was, he would pick up, or this glass. We think, what is this? So we pick it up, oh, it's a flashlight or a glass of water. Then we put it down again. We hold things in this way. So I'll leave it there for that particular reading. Let's see. So in that respect, the evenness comes from the attitude, not the amount of time we spend in one particular posture, but the, uh, the, it's the evenness of attention, the, the, the sort of consistency of, of, uh, of mindfulness with respect to each of the postures. That's the, the evenness there. This particular exercise constitutes the Satipatthana contemplation 
that most prominently fulfills the role of providing a firm grounding of awareness in the body. Because of this foundational role, it seems reasonable to follow the Majjama Agama version of Satipatthana and place it at the beginning of the body contemplations. So he's going back to that rather than having mindfulness of breathing as the first one to be referred to. He's again making a, 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 a bid for this um, mindfulness of the four postures to be the, the, the one that's sort of essentially considered first. For the beginner in Satipatthana, this simple exercise of being aware of the body in whatever position helps to build up a continuity of sati. By performing even the least important movement of the body in a conscious and deliberate manner, the most mundane activities can be turned into occasions for mental development. Awareness trained in this way constitutes an important foundation for more formal meditation, since diligent practice of this contemplation will bring the mind's tendency to distraction considerably under control. Uh, so on that point, and also as he was saying at the end of the, the previous uh, chunk, um, that uh, being with the body uh, during its natural activities, instead of being carried away by various thoughts and ideas, therefore to be mentally anchored in the body. Uh, this is a, a point that I make pretty much every time I'm ever asked to, to teach meditation, is that the body is always in the present moment. It never wanders off into the past or the future. Our thoughts can imagine, uh, can create images of the past and can go off and inhabit memories. It can create images of a, a possible future and go off and, and uh, absorb into those uh, imaginations or create fantasy worlds in the present moment. But the body is always here. It's an absolutely guaranteed pachupana dhamma, here and now, um, uh, reality. It never wanders. Uh, I, I can guarantee that none of you have ever got so distracted in the meditation that when you came back to your body it wasn't there. <laughs> Put your hand up if you if you ever had that experience where you, you, you got distracted off zooming off into some kind of um, daydream and when you came back your body was somewhere else. It never happens, does it? It doesn't happen. And even though that's kind of a joke, it's also kind of not a joke. It's like, <laughs> this is the most reliable friend, the most faithful companion that will, will never let you down. It's always here. It never goes anywhere else. So the mindfulness of the body is an absolutely guaranteed, 100% reliable um, <coughs> access point to the present reality, to the Sanditiko Dhamma, apparent here and now the Pachupana Dhamma, the, the Dhamma of the present moment. So it's uh, in terms of attuning to the, the reality of things, the body, mindfulness of the body is the most easy and, and literally tangible um, access point for that. And as John Lennon put it, uh, paraphrasing Dr. Samuel Johnson, life is what happens while we're making other plans. You miss your life. If you're not paying attention to the present, you miss your life. You're not there for it because you're busy planning other things or, or, or being nostalgic about other things. You're not here. So you miss your life. Life is, that, life is what happens while we're making other plans. So uh, if you want to enjoy your life, it's good to be there for it. <laughs> to, be, to, to be here in the most e easy and direct, guaranteed way to key the attention into 
your life and to be present for it is to uh, use the, the body and its uh, ongoing and totally reliable presence uh, as your sort of access point, that's the, the, the gateway. Awareness of the four postures is not only a way to build up mindfulness. The four bodily postures can also be used as objects of insightful investigation. <coughs> a verse from the Teragata, for example, relates the ability to assume any of the four postures to the interaction of the bones and tendons in the body responsible for that posture. By describing the mechanics behind bodily activities in this way, this verse points to a perspective on contemplating the body which has received much attention from modern meditation teachers. The mechanics involved in assuming a bodily posture or performing a movement usually escape notice owing to one's preoccupation with the outcome of one's action. In particular, a practical example for investigating the activity of walking can be found in the commentaries, which suggest, which suggest breaking down the process of walking into the successive stages of a single step, which can be then correlated with the four elements. So lifting, moving, placing, um, and, uh, and putting the foot down. Um, I'm not sure exactly how the four elements get um, put together. Oh, here we are. It says, uh, quoting from the Visuddhi Magga, the predominance of earth and water uh, involved in placing, and the predominance of fire and air in lifting. Uh, yes, right. <laughs> well, if it says so, uh, I wouldn't necessarily have made that connection, but they must have good reasons. That's in the Visuddhi Magga, if you want to look that up. Um, but yeah, in the Mahasi technique for meditation, they do a very, a very slow uh, kind of walking, and uh, that, uh, and also activities are, are sort of slowed down to a, a um, extremely sort of sloth-like, sort of like a slow loris sort of movement. Um, so sometimes, if you're on a retreat, uh, on a, in a retreat center, or you're on a retreat with the Mahasi technique is being taught, then and spend a long time getting to the meditation hall or leaving the meditation hall. That if you get to the back, of the, if you're at the back of the food line, it's all definitely going to be cold by the time you get there. But uh, that's part of the the method that he he used. And in the walking meditation, in particular, that uh, uh, lifting, moving, placing for each footstep, and then when you get to the end of the path and turning around. Uh, I've never been on a Mahasi side or uh, uh, retreat, so. Um, I can't speak from direct experience, but I'm told there's something like 27 different points to note in the turning of the body at the end of the walking path. So, thus have I heard. As mentioned above, the four postures are often used in the discourses as a way to indicate that something should be done at any time. In this way, they are at times related to various predominantly mental events, such as fear, unwholesome thoughts, or overcoming the five hindrances. These passages relate each of the four postures to awareness of the concurrent state of mind. This indicates that removing unwholesome states of mind, for example, is not confined to formal sitting meditation, but can and should 
be undertaken in any situation or posture. The fact that meditation does not have to be exclusively associated with the sitting posture is also recognized in the Vimutimaga and the Visuddhimaga. So the Vimutimaga um, <coughs> was uh, written by the Arahant Upatissa and was a, 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 it disappeared in Sri Lanka as it was associated with the Abhayagiri Monastery, which got um, dismantled and suppressed. But the uh, copies of it survived in China, and so it's um, been sort of re, uh, reconstituted and um, there's translations available. And the Visuddhimagga was written by Acharya Buddha Gosa um, somewhat later. The Vimutimagga is earlier. The, uh, so Vimuti means uh, liberation. So Vimutimagga means the, the path of liberation. And Visuddhimagga means the path of purification. So Visuddhimagga was, was somewhat later, uh, about a thousand years after the Buddha, written by Acharya Buddha Gosa, who came from India. And uh, Upatissa, um, the author of the Vimutimagga, he was uh, in uh, Sri Lankan. I believe. So these two, uh, Vimutimaga and Visuddhimaga, which indicate that, depending on the character of individual meditators, other postures may be adopted for carrying out the practice of meditation. And the way that Ajahn Chah used to summarize this, um, he would say, uh, you can suffer in every posture, so it's possible and, 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 uh, and uh, desirable to practice in every posture. <laughs> because there is that sense of I want to go to the temple and practice, as if the the, uh, the conversation that you're having when you're saying that to somebody is not need not be practice on, on its own or walking to the temple, and so that kind of continuity of um, of, uh, of practice through all postures in different situations was something that is very characteristic of Ajahn Chah's uh, approach to to meditation, and so uh, as a consequence, I I don't like to um, uh, to talk of sitting meditation as as sort of practice in and of itself, or that the times when you're not on retreat or you're not in the meditation hall, you're not doing walking meditation as as not practice, but rather I, I like to express it as formal practice and informal practice. And uh, with respect to this, often times the, the the sense of I'm practicing can bring a certain tension. I mean, again, I'm kind of joking, but uh, I think we all know that state. Okay, time to practice. Okay, and that the in that me practicing, me doing something, there's a uh, that I making and mind making habit, the ahankara, mamankara uh, tendency can can easily take shape. And uh, and so uh, I often point out when you ring the bell, there's a huge sense of relief, not just because your knees have been uh, given permission to to be uh, stretched and there's a, an absence of, of uh, physical pain for a while but also there's the relief of ah, I don't, now I, you know, the bell's gone I don't have to I don't have to do anything it's sort of, ah. and so I like to point out that the relief is also the letting go of the me who's supposed to be doing something but, and isn't it strange that the, the moment of great peace in the meditation is when the, med when the meditation is over <laughs> ding ah well, ideally, that ah should be the whole meditation, and not just when the bell goes. So, this is why we uh, it's it's uh, so important to get a sense of the uh, intention, the sort of right right resolution, samasankapa, right resolution, right intention, um, and how that informs right effort, so that 
if it's I've got to practice, so I'm going to really work on my. You know, I've got to really work on my practice. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to. Then that um, it might be sincere. It might be energetic. But if the intention there is me doing something now to get a result in the future, then that is wrapped up with with bhavatanha vipavatanha, the desire to become, the desire to get rid of. And if our effort is based on on bhavatanha vipavatanha, the desire to become, the desire to get rid of, as Lumposameto again, like Ajahn Chah, is very good at coming up with these nifty phrases. If it starts off with ignorance, it'll end up in suffering. You start off with with um, craving, with uh, ignorance and craving, then the result will be dukkha. If we start off with right view, yeah, right view comes first, uh, and then rather than the intention uh, and motivation, the uh, sankapa uh, being uh, based on uh, me trying to get something, me practicing, uh, but rather there's, there's right effort, there's uh, mindfulness, wisdom is guiding the the effort uh, and there is a, an attunement to dhamma. If the effort is really sama, is right, right effort sama vayama, then that uh, the effort in the meditation will uh, will lead to to clarity and peacefulness. The, the meditation will be all ah, and uh, again as Lumpur Sameda would put it, <coughs> you start off with right view, then the result is nibbana. You start off with 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 vijja, with right view, with awareness. The result is nibbana, is peacefulness. If you start off with avijja, ignorance, wrong view, the result is dukkha. Okay. Another possibility suggested by the fact that the discourses relate the four postures to various states of mind is to observe the interrelation between states of mind and the way one performs activities like walking, sitting, etc. Through such observation, one can become aware of how a particular state of mind expresses itself through, how, through one's bodily posture, or how the condition, position and motion of the body affects the mind. Bodily posture and state of mind are intrinsically interrelated, so that clear awareness of the one naturally enhances awareness of the other. In this way, contemplation of the four postures can lead to an investigation of the body's conditional interrelation with the mind. Uh, so again, just to to, uh, to to use Ajahn Chah's sort of perspective on that, he would, uh, he would encourage in terms of, of walking to learn and to practice just walking one step at a time. And you might think, well, I always, I always walk one step at a time, <laughs> but often we don't. You know, like if we're if we're leaving the the sala, then our attention's on the door, and then we're, the 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 body is sort of being dragged along behind the mind. That often we're we're getting ahead of ourselves, uh, and we don't walk one step at a time. And then this is uh, a phrase that, um, uh, an example that uh, Lumpur Sameda would often give in his talks about how when uh, he was a young monk at uh, at Wabapong and. One of the villagers came round to his kuti and said, "Oh, Tansumato, Tansumato, uh, Lumpur's got some visitors have come. They'd like to meet you. Can you come over to the to his kuti and and uh, meet these um, people who've come?" And so he said, "Oh, God, I've got to get ready." And gets his robes off the rail and puts his robes on. Is scurrying down the the the, the steps from the, from the the veranda of the kuti down to the ground and. 
goes in, going on the path. And he also, he's a lot taller than the villagers, uh, being six foot two, and the villagers usually being about five foot four. <coughs> and so then this little fellow scurrying along behind the, the large bhikkhu Sumato says, oh, Lumpur Chada doesn't walk like that. <laughs> so, of course, uh, the young bhikkhu Sumato had a, what do you mean, moment. <laughs> and... Uh, and he said, oh, well, yeah, Lumpur, and he walks one step at a time. And also in northeast Thailand, making personal remarks like that is very, it's not considered rude or, or unfriendly or, or um, out of place. It's quite normal to make very personal remarks and judgments like that. And so he said, oh, yeah, Lumpur, and he walks one step at a time, not like you. <laughs> and he realized that's, that was true, that he was always getting ahead of himself and that... Uh, <clears throat> and that Lumpur Cha always had this this kind of composed quality to his um, uh, to his manner and uh, the way he he did things, the way he walked. Not that he was walking in slow motion; you know, you could walk quite briskly, but always just fully with the the body in that moment. So that's a, a very useful uh, practice, uh, and also it, it particularly in walking because we generally have a destination; we're going somewhere. Even on the walking path, we're going to the end of the path. <laughs> You can be driven towards that point. <laughs> Even in slow motion, you can be. <coughs> but uh, to just let the mind know the experience of the body walking so that the body is walking, there's motion happening, but the mind is perfectly still. And uh, so that's a, a very helpful principle that cuts through the, the that becoming tendency. And so, uh, as I said about with the meditation, sitting meditation, to uh, to be um, bringing attention to that me getting somewhere, me doing something, me trying to develop this or get rid of that, me uh, aiming to get to that place, that just that slightly uh, um, uh, uh, say mistuned way of uh, of holding things, the attitude being slightly out of balance, out of tune then that creates more dukkha, that there's there's no place of rest, we never get to a place of completion or rest, but when we walk one step at a time, when we just are, are fully attentive to the present, not not caught up in that I making, my making that uh, it, it, it's a, a way of very directly breaking through that becoming uh, an eye-making, mind-making tendency. And uh, as it says, in, in, again in the discourses, it says, Bhavani Rodho Nibbanang. Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. So when that bhava, that uh, me trying to get something, me doing this now to get that in the future, when that's let go of, then there's a quality of peacefulness. Bhavani Rodho Nibbanang. Any questions or clarifications before I carry on? Annie looks like she's on the verge of something. No? No, a sip of the cup of tea. I have a question. So does that mean that when one is walking, one should adopt a sort of deliberately artificial way of walking? No. That is mindful, <laughs> so to speak. Heaven for fend. <laughs> Well, it might be special in so far as you just stop the <laughs> Sister Tisara driving for the horizon. Well, it's to walk, so. <laughs> <laughs>
people might notice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's it, it's not like a different way of of walking necessarily, but it's holding it in a in a different manner. But it, I mean, it is visible from the outside, like the, that villager looking at, at the young bhikkhus of Mato going, but, you know. Well, that's that's, a, uh, that's so kind of glaringly um, obvious, or so or so different from Lumpur Chow. But it's not like any sort of stylized walking method, like like if you've been doing the Alexander technique and you're trying to walk properly. <laughs> because then, it, if you're again, it becomes me trying to do something with my walk, and then it, it again, it's a different kind of becoming. But uh, to uh, <coughs> it's it's helpful just to to practice with with simple things like say I I, uh, I can, my hand is moving so if I if I focus on on my I keep my attention in the hand there's this feeling of moving but if I relax the attention uh, there's the knowing of the movement is not going anywhere the hand is still moving but the mind isn't going anywhere. So you can do little exercises like that. And another kind of meditation Ajahn Chah described that um, it's, it's kind of useful if it's a sort of indoor walking meditation or sort of pocket walking meditation. You'd say, uh, take, a, take a cup or a glass or any other object will do. So put it down in, in one spot and then, <coughs> then sit for, uh, for two minutes, two minutes exactly, not one minute fifty-nine or two minutes and one second. Two minutes exactly, and at two minutes you pick it up and move it, put it down again. And you let another two minutes go by, you pick it up, move it back. So if it's if it's too rainy or cold outside to do walking meditation, it's like a kind of pocket walking meditation. <laughs> so that, and then, uh, it, because it's, it's a similar kind of exercise. Yeah, that the, the the thing is moving, but is the mind moving with it? There's the action. There's the intention. Um, also, you've got to keep you know, two minutes. You've got to keep an eye on the clock. It's, it's, a, it's not so quick that you're having to sort of like a constant process, but just enough time to pause. So it's it's an interesting exercise. It doesn't have to be raining outside to, to warrant it, but that uh, learning how to, uh, in a sense, have the attention abiding with the quality of knowing. Uh, this that sort of stillness uh, and spaciousness of of knowing whether the action is happening, but the mind isn't attached to the to the action. So I, again, Ajahn Chah's um, image of still flowing water. The, you know, the perceptions flow, but that which is knowing the perceptions isn't 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 moving. is is perfectly still. It's outside of space and and time. It's not tied up with that. You can practice your in the privacy of the nuns vihara. So. <laughs> well, yes, you know, so when I when I started meditation, I did the Mahasi technique, uh-huh. and so you know, you take an hour to walk to there mm-hmm. and back again, and, and the um, level of concentration that you reach by doing it is, is, is enormous. You know, mm-hmm. the, the detail that you can experience is you, know, you become aware of a lot of the autonomous functions of the body, mm-hmm. which normally just wouldn't be. So it's kind of 
but you can't do that when you move really fast. Right. It's much more difficult. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so it's a different kind of, it's more, it's more, um, it's less, uh, less refined, I suppose, if you move at a normal speed mm-hmm. or something like that. But it's also, it's a, um, an Ajahn Chah very deliberately, because he was, the Mahasi technique was quite popular in Thailand. It came after the, the big Sangha council in 56, 57 in Burma, then a number of the Thai monks who'd been there, because um, Mahasi Sayadaw was the convener, he was like the, the head of the assembly, and so he had quite a big influence on people that were there. And then also his Mahasi Yekta had been started and it was a unique thing, like a lay meditation center in the middle of the capital city that hadn't never been done before. It was quite a revolutionary idea. And so that got the attention of a few of the, the Thai monks, senior Thai monks who were there. And so that had become quite popular in, in Thailand over the late 50s and into the 60s. Uh, but Ajahn Chah, he, and he, uh, he saw that it made it um, feel like to be mindful means you must be doing everything in slow motion. Or if you're not paying attention to every microscopic detail, every flicker of the autonomic nervous system, that you're not, you're not being mindful. And, uh, and he realized, no, that's not right, because you can, you can do things really quickly and be mindful. Uh, and, uh, and so he, he, uh, he would encourage just walking at a, an ordinary natural pace. And then, then what happens is that you develop a, a mindfulness that's much more adaptable to everyday living. And uh, so you can work, you can use your hands, you can make decisions, you can talk with people and, in, uh, and then sustain a quality of mindfulness so you're not feeling like, oh, well, I want this to be over so I can go and practice, you know, where everything can be still and quiet and nothing will interfere with my practice. And he saw that... that even though there were skillful qualities that could be developed by that degree of control and a very, very, um, like a sort of hyper-sterilized meditation environment, that the, the transferring the skills to everyday living was, made, was very, very hard because life was not supporting you living that way. You drive the rest of your family nuts. Like a, a story I tell of this, this uh, fellow who... Uh, um, it was very sincere and he, and he came to me one day and said oh John I'm having a really hard time practicing you know, because my, my family give me a lot of grief they're really they're kind of really anti-Buddhism and I said oh that's, that's unfortunate he says, yeah you know like, like at breakfast time I'm trying to eat my breakfast mindfully you know and so I'm kind of picking up the packet of cereal and then you know kind of carefully moving it over and then my kids are giving me all kinds of grief. They're saying, Dad, you know, hurry up. We've got to get to school. Come on. <laughs> and he says, like, oh, you know, I'm trying to explain. You know, I'm, I'm practicing. And, and that, you could see this whole sort of painful vista. Like, oh, <laughs> please, no, no, say it's not true. You know? But he was very sincere. And you could almost hear the kids saying, Dad, will you stop doing that stupid Buddhist thing? We've got to get to school. You know, the, the bus is coming. And so I'm being mindful of it. Pouring the milk on his Weetabix, you know, be kind of soggy by the time he gets to eat them. <laughs> it takes so long. But, but the uh, <clears throat> and he said, "Well, you know, Dave, you know, it's quite all right to actually do things at a normal speed and still be mindful." And but that got that impression that you know you have to, you, you can't really be mindful if you're doing things at a normal pace. But it's 
I would say it's a it's a really um, very very useful and significant element of of the, of the practice, and, and also Lumpur Chah's approach was that sense of uh, a continuity of mindfulness uh, throughout uh, all activities, and even if you're very busy or you're kind of uh, in a, using a lot of physical exertion or the conditions are very um, uh, agitated, like uh, going on the London Underground or you're moving a pile of <coughs> of, of rock from one side of the monastery to the other and such like that they, you can still sustain yeah, and the encouragement to sustain mindfulness through the, those uh, those different changing conditions. You haven't got the same concentration, the same detail, but then that doesn't mean to say that you you have to you, you're necessarily unmindful because you can even in the midst of a lot of activity there can still be that quality of stillness and it's a sense of of composure even whilst in, in the middle of of, of a, you know, careful and and, and a strenuous activity. As soon as you think. Here I am being mindful of, of throwing logs to the other monks. <laughs> you get one in the head, you know. It's like, it's like, don't think about it, just, just do it. <laughs> okay. There's an interesting description of um, uh, Joseph Campbell, the American um, writer and thinker and a great exponent of uh, psychology and mythology and such like. He, he was a, an Olympic-class runner. A lot of people don't are not aware of that. He was like a, a half miler, and um, he uh, and he described and his he peaked at the period between two Olympics, <laughs> so so he never actually got to to race in the Olympics. But but he was like a college athlete in the states, and and he describes a, when someone was I think it was in the interviews with Bill Moyers. And he asked Bill Myers asked him what was the most profound religious experience. And you know, here's a guy who's been writing about religion and mythology and psychology for his whole life. He said uh, it was on the running track, and it was a um, a relay. So like uh, f- four people doing each doing a half mile relay. So it was like a a um, sort of two mile long relay. So each each of the runners would do two laps of the of the track. And he was the anchor. He was like the last runner, and. Uh, <clears throat> And they they were in this uh, I forget which you know he's like running for Columbia and they were running against Princeton or some other American university, and uh, he he said how the other team were quite far in front they were like about fifty the 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 runner from the the other team was about fifty yards in front, but he said as soon as the baton hit my hand I knew it's my race, even though he had two whole laps of the track to do. He, something just clicked, and he said, it's, you know, this is my race. And his mind went into this extraordinarily uh, still, uh, sort of clear um, state, and he, said, he, just, he just ran. He said there was this, this uh, uh, quality of perfect composure and total stillness while his body is running the race of his life, and he did win. He, he, he beat the other guy, and his, his team won the relay. Uh, and but the whole the whole time he said there was this extraordinary composure and stillness even as his body like he's <laughs> running a a, a half mile uh, competitive race but yet even as his body is exerting itself to the fullest extent possible the mind was was perfectly quiet. <coughs> 
quiet and still, so that the two you know, can work together. And also the fact that he he related that that was the most powerful religious experience of his life was, you know, on the running track. Okay, so to continue. This particular contemplation can also lead to one, uh, can lead one to question the sense of identity underlying any of the four postures. The commentaries give a practical shape to this suggestion, since, according to them, the decisive difference between simple walking and walking meditation, as a Satipatthana, is that the meditator keeps in mind the question, who goes? Whose is this going? So, who is walking? Yeah. Where, uh, where am I going to? Or who is this that uh, is uh, who is this that's going somewhere? Is there anyone going anywhere? Uh, those kind of questions. So it's uh, uh, it's interesting that um, that was also highlighted in the Visuddhi Magga, and that uh, uh, the um, uh, this is you know even today that's a, a very helpful and and. Uh, useful way of, of giving a framework to, to walking meditation is there someone going somewhere <laughs> what is it that knows this walking is there, uh, is there an owner of this, this action and to, in those asking those questions then the point is not to try and get some sort of conceptual answer but rather to highlight the, the sense of oh, I'm going over there to the end of the path <laughs> and to, to burst that bubble of uh, identi- identity Another perspective on the development of insight can be gained by turning awareness to minor postural adjustments. The main reason for these adjustments is to avoid the physical pain that develops when the same posture is maintained for a long time, which I'm sure we all know about. Through closer observation, it will become evident that most of the semi-conscious adjustments made in any posture are a constant effort to alleviate the pain inherent in having a body. Of these four postures, the discourses individually relate walking and reclining to the development of awareness. Walking meditation often comes up circumstantially in the discourses when a visitor, on approaching a settlement of monks, finds them practicing walking meditation in the open. So it's quite a, a common thing that somebody arrives in a monastery and they see various monks uh, doing chankama, uh, walking meditation out in the open under the trees. Several passages report the Buddha and some of his senior disciples engaged in walking meditation. So in the Diganikaya, Sanyutta, Teragata, then you have instances of uh, the monastics doing walking meditation practice. This shows that even accomplished practitioners considered walking meditation a worthwhile practice. According to the discourses, walking meditation benefits bodily health and digestion and leads to the development of sustained concentration. The commentaries document the insight potential of walking meditation with instances of its use that led to full realization. And I think the Patisambhida Magga relates the story of a monk who realized arahantship after 20 years of sustained walking meditation. That's a long walk. <laughs> and also uh, the, another passage in the Patisambhida Magga records the same realization for another monk after 16 years of walking meditation.
Unlike the way in which walking meditation is usually practiced nowadays, the standard instructions for walking meditation found in the discourses take mental events as their main object of observation. So that's in contrast to say nowadays uh, uh, and what I'm used to doing um, uh, and probably most of us here are familiar with is if we're doing walking meditation the instruction is usually to bring attention to the feeling of the feet uh, meeting the ground as you walk along the feeling of the, the body in motion. Um, but uh, um, Venerable Analio helpfully points out that um, the standard instructions for walking meditation found in the discourses take mental events as their main object of observation. <coughs> the instructions in this context do not mention awareness of one's bodily posture or of the dynamics of walking, but speak of purifying the mind from obstructive states. Since the same expression is also used for sitting meditation, it simply implies a continuation <coughs> of the same meditation that has earlier been practiced while seated, albeit in a different posture. And again, um, uh, this is something that uh, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho and, and uh, others, others of us in this tradition would emphasize that there isn't any kind of categorical difference between sitting meditation, walking meditation, standing meditation, um, uh, because um, it's rather just the, the particular pattern of the object changes, but it's uh, it's like a different, um, uh, say, uh, a different object. But the the the, the method of, of focusing and the 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 results of the of the practice are going to be you know, slightly different. But the the fundamental attitude towards the the practice is uh, is the same, and also the sense of the value that can come from from walking meditation, sitting meditation, standing meditation, which. Um, and standing, uh, as people might uh, might be aware, is a little less common. But particularly if you have really bad knees, uh, it's an extremely useful meditation practice. And also, as I was talking about the other day, if you close your eyes the, uh, and stand, then the body has to work quite hard to sustain its upright posture. And you and you you become acutely aware of the minor adjustments in the feet between your toes and your heels and uh, the, and the body. Uh, uh, Sustaining itself in the upright posture, so standing meditation can be a real uh, a real blessing, uh, and also quite you can develop quite a lot of strong concentration through standing meditation, and uh, you, you can use the breath as a focal point, but also just the the feeling in the feet when you're standing. Um, there is it's got quite a a lot of variety in the the changing textures of sensation in the feet as you're as you're maintaining the upright posture. So that is it's a a good concentration exercise and also a relief to your poor aching ailing knees. So. Ajahn, uh, just out of curiosity, in Thailand I want to see a monk doing a sort of funny uh, meditation, uh, sitting meditation, but mm. he was moving his hands in a sort of like a robotic way. Yes. Um, and I never asked him about it. I never asked anybody else if, if it's a, a something, some known technique, because I've never seen anybody else doing it since or anything. But I mean, thinking about it now, it's a good combination of if you have to be doing sitting meditation and you are restless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly why the yeah. Follow the movement of the hand, and, but 
Yeah, it's a technique developed by one Thai Ajahn. And um, I think particularly because of that, so that uh, uh, to help sustain concentration by giving a particular um, succession of, of movements. Um, and um, uh, I've never done it myself, but there are some, uh, some monasteries, it's, it's like the main method of practice. And uh, he's, it's a contemporary monk. It's not like an ancient tra- uh, sort of tradition, but it's something that he developed and and uh, uh, sort of propounded that as a as a skillful meditation technique. And there's a book in the library. It's in Ajahn Lee's section, where it's a student of Ajahn Lee, and he, he says it's a way to get a certain sensation in the chest as well, which then you focus on. So I so I looked at it. Ajahn Lee Dhammadara, there's a, a little yellow book that has that technique. Ajahn, say Gina Wangso, is a Dutch monk um, who's about 20, 20 plus Vasa. Yeah, he's, he stayed in that domain monastery and, and that's the main technique that he uses. But he was ordained at um, Wapapong. He's a so Ajahn Chah monk, but that's what, he's found that method very, very helpful. So that's what he uses. Okay, so just to continue, I'll finish this section um, for today. A discourse in the Anguttara Nikaya recommends walking meditation as an antidote for drowsiness. In this case, however, the instructions are different from the standard descriptions. The meditator is to focus on the walking path to keep the senses withdrawn and to prevent the mind from getting distracted outwardly. That is a, you know, a very good way if you're feeling sleepy, and especially during late night sittings or all night sittings, um, then to do some walking meditation. You can actually fall asleep in the walking posture. I have had that experience. I didn't fall over, but I... I uh, uh, I had um, it was at Wat Pananasha uh, years ago, and uh, I was uh, I wasn't I was actually at the turning point. So I reached the end of the, of the path and was uh, sort of turning around to, to start walking again, and I, and I fell asleep. And I had this dream, and in this dream, Ajahn Chah gave me his golf clubs. <laughs> I thought it's possibly significant or possibly just a you know, random delusion. But <laughs> I was quite impressed that you could actually fall asleep and have a dream in the, without, without keeling over, which is good because it's a concrete floor. So it would have been very uncomfortable to, to hit the deck at that point. But, so you, uh, but it is also a good way of rousing energy and to just to use the, the body's system, to, uh, you know, the natural system of the body to help uh, increase the level of, uh, of wakefulness. To cultivate awareness in regard to the reclining posture, meditators should lie down mindfully on their right side to rest during the middle part of the night, keeping in mind the time to wake up. That's called the lion's posture. Um, And so when you see a reclining Buddha image, then the Buddha is always lying down on his his right side. And for um, who knows exactly what reason, but it seems that the the mind, and from experience certainly shows that the mind seems to be a, a bit brighter or clearer if you lie on your right side rather than on your left side. Certainly that's how it works for me, so that's how I always lie down. Instructions for falling asleep mindfully 
appear to be mainly concerned with waking up at a predetermined time. And so you get over and over again, it says the Buddha lay down um, and sitting in, sitting in place, the time for awakening, he mindfully went to sleep. According to other passages, falling asleep with awareness improves the quality of one's sleep and prevents bad dreams. By way of conclusion, it should be underlined that in spite of these various perspectives on developing insight related to the four postures, what the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta itself suggest is simply awareness of the whole body in general and of its disposition in space. So that, as it says, just uh, simply knowing the body, here is the body, uh, knowing according to however the body is disposed. So here is basically knowing... Here is the body. It's it's in this posture. Also, as a a, a, a footnote, um, a, a Venerable Ananda was the only person to have uh, realized complete enlightenment outside of the four postures. So he has a unique distinction, many unique distinctions. But uh, one of them is that uh, the Venerable Ananda managed to to achieve arahatship without being in any of the four postures. <laughs> and this was because uh, the night before the uh, the first council, so after the Buddha had passed away, the Parinibbana, they decided in May of uh, that year, they decided to have a, a council of 500 arahants um, to establish the, the, the uh, teachings, the Dhamma teachings and the Vinaya. And the, the uh, King Ajatasattu had offered this uh, place uh, near Rajagaha to be a, um, uh, a a vihara a monastery for them to have this meeting for, for, the, the, for the rains and so this meeting was supposed to happen at the beginning of the rains and uh, it was sort of arahants only um, were invited and even though Ananda had been the Buddha's attendant for 25 years and had perfect recall so he could recollect you know, every uh, teaching the Buddha had given and then he also asked the Buddha if he ever gave teachings when the Buddha wasn't, when Ananda wasn't present, then the Buddha would repeat them to him so he could recollect them. So Ananda had perfect recall of, the, of all the discourses, but uh, the Venerable Mahakasapa said, if you're not an Arahant, you can't come to the meeting. Very brotherly attitude. <laughs> Sorry, Ananda, no pressure, no pressure, but uh, if you're not an Arahant, you can't come to the meeting. And so this this did put a bit of pressure on dear Venerable Ananda um, because he was an anagami, he was a non-returner, but uh, uh, he'd always been so busy looking after the uh, the Buddha's needs and taking care of of all the concerns of uh, seeing, t- looking after visitors and uh, and the um, welfare of uh, the the Buddha that uh, he had not finished his practice, as it were. And so the, the night before, the great council is supposed to, to convene, Ananda is, uh, is uh, meditating through the night, putting forth great effort to try and make the, the breakthrough to a complete enlightenment. And uh, according to the account, uh, then he's, he starts to see the sky getting lighter and dawn is coming and he still hasn't reached uh, enlightenment. And so then he, th- and then, uh, he, he thinks, well, uh, dawn is coming, the... Uh, the the uh, rosy-fingered dawn is painting the sky, and uh, still I have not reached fulfillment. Um, and then, it, kind of, it's like well, it's going to be a long day. I better get a rest. 
so that, well it's gonna uh, there's, there's no point in me carrying on because uh, I'm already uh, tired so um, uh, I'll just uh, lie down and, and uh, rest for a while and it's said that when his feet left the, he, so he sat down on the edge of the bed uh, on the little uh, the sleeping platform and then as his feet left the floor and before his head hit the pillow he reached complete enlightenment <laughs> so he was out, enlightened outside of the four postures he, and so that uh, and, and it's a very significant it's not just a nice neat story um, to give him a, uni- a unique quality but it's also in terms of the, the practice of me trying to get something like can you imagine okay there's 499 arahants and you Ananda no pressure and, and you've memorized all the teachings nobody else has no pressure <laughs> so through the night he's trying to, to, to do the needful and then at that moment where he says oh well didn't work but you know all of the necessary qualities all the paramita had been sort of developed to the fulfillment but what was getting in the way was me has to, I have to achieve this for them and as soon as he he said okay it's, it's not, uh, there's nothing to uh, achieve as soon as he dropped that I've got to do something then all of the the qualities ripened and he uh, realized total enlightenment in the commentaries, I don't think it's the, the, in the account in the sutta, in the uh, in the vinaya. It's a, in the uh, Chulavaga It describes this, but uh, I think in the commentaries it says that he, in order to impress upon the other four hundred ninety-nine bhikkhus that he had indeed reached full enlightenment, he arrived floating, uh, uh, you know, three feet off the ground in the lotus posture. So, arrived in the meeting. So, okay, guys, any of you got any doubts? You know. <laughs> That's a, definitely got a commentarial feel to it. The, the suttas don't, the, the Vinaya text doesn't mention that. But it's a nice image. Now they're kind of swooping into the Satapani cave. Is <laughs> <laughs> this sort of St. Venerable Mahakasapha? Where's my seat? <laughs> so that's enough for today, I think. <laughs>